This is why we love the NFL. Folks, it is Super Bowl week. We are live from the studios at WMIU. This is In-Depth on Sports. I am your host, Ian Colucci, and you could argue it's one of the best weeks of the year. I mean, there are certain times in sports where everything just kind of comes together. I mean, the last week of October is, you know, that sports equinox season. You know, actually, when we came on the air and did our first few shows, and, you know, now we're at the point we're finally at you know, this is this is the peak. This is it. Super Bowl week is finally here. The Bengals and the Rams going to be taking on each other. 6.30 Eastern time, Sunday, uh, February 13th. Uh, it's what we've been waiting for. I mean, and, you know, as, as we come in here going in after a pretty wild season in the NFL, arguably one of the best over the last 10 or 15 years or so, I mean, talk about talk about unexpected outcomes talk about tons of questions going into the season i mean you had you know aaron Rodgers is a favorite for the mvp and probably a final run for the pack with the packers after you know a lot of questions going into that at the start of the season but you know at this point you you have an outcome where Joe Burrow is going to be facing off against matthew stafford in a a super bowl quarterback matchup that I don't know if we were really expecting going into the season, but certainly one that I don't think anyone can disagree is going to be fantastic uh, for Super Bowl 56. We're definitely, so uh, here's the here's the setup for today's show. We're going to be definitely going in for some Super Bowl talk. We're going to do, we're going to make some predictions on the Super Bowl. We're going to talk, of course, on some specifics in terms of, you know, some of the offensive weapons each of these teams have, defensive challenges, stuff they're going to have to overcome, the injury report going in, and definitely going to make a prediction for this Sunday's game. Uh, in terms of other stuff in the world of sports, I mean, with this gap with the NFL season, I mean, obviously you had the wild AFC and NFC championship games um, in close proximity last week. But now, of course, there's this gap and we had the Pro Bowl and, you know, you had uh, the NHL All-Star game. It's almost, you know, as if the sports world decided that we were going to take a break from anything that might be remotely exciting this weekend. And then, of course, specifically focus on the Super Bowl going into this week, where I would assume the NFL will probably get over $100 million in terms of views for this year year i think the sort of the hype that has surrounded this um this super bowl and sort of the divisional round games that were as exciting as anyone could have ever possibly imagined those are going to be what drives ratings for the nfl going into this i mean this is exactly what you could have wanted i think maybe in terms of like greater market share i think it may have been a little better if you have kansas city in there but Let's be honest. I think it's a nice change of pace, and I think I'm 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 really excited to see what happens. I mean, next time next time when we come back on the air, uh, uh, February fifteenth, I believe we will know. We will have all sorts. We're going to break down the game, of course. Um, 
going to go into some of the questions going into the offseason. Uh, we'll also have some NFL awards winners, uh, as you heard uh, in that clip from the uh, from the beginning of the show. Uh, uh, one of the comments was, you know, uh, in the commentary, you know, Jamar Chase being offensive rookie of the year that is unquestioned without a doubt and Yes, it is unquestioned. He will be after the phenomenal regular season performance. And, you know, with the NFL, with awards considerations, um, it's a little bit different than other sports because you have sort of the postseason, regular season controversy, whether or not the postseason should be taken into account in terms of, uh, in terms of you know, awards consideration. And in retrospect, despite Jamar Chase's performance in the regular season, and even if you were to include it or without it, he still wins it regardless. So it really doesn't matter in that case. But, you know, it's, he's his talents are going to be showcased on the national stage uh, for really all the world to see and I think it's really going to help promote not just necessarily his brand but as one of the greatest receivers in the NFL and hopefully around for a very long time with his former college companion Joe Burrow and as of course we're going to go into the Super Bowl we're going to talk a little Pro Bowl and NHL All-Star game because let's be honest here okay the Pro Bowl and the NHL All-Star game I I watched a little bit of both I did not watch all of both and are you are you kidding me? I mean, this, this is, you know, you say what you will about Major League Baseball. And we're gonna actually going to talk a little bit about the state of the lockout uh, in later in the show. But say what you will about Major League Baseball. They did the All-Star game right. I mean, it is a it is a, a a competition of skills in the American League and the National League where, you know, the game is not altered in any way. There is no ch- well. I mean, there's some controversy with the balls in terms of big market games, but let's let's put that aside for a second. I mean, this is a game where it is clearly American League of uh, the American League skills versus the National League skills in a a nine inning game with no alterations to the sport. No one is throwing in any less of an effort. I mean, there's injury stuff. Um, maybe like some of the best players may not play because of injury concerns or starts. I know a couple pitchers may opt out because they have a start like right after the All Star break, but Let's be honest. The game is the same. And I, for one, love that about the Major League Baseball All-Star game. It doesn't change anything about it. I mean, if you watch the Pro Bowl, if you watch the Pro Bowl, there's minimal effort. I mean, I mean... That, that's it. I mean, it's a good game. You get to see the players you want to see. But that's pretty much it. I mean, the, the, the sort of effort that you see from these players isn't necessarily, you know, speak to a high quality of competition. Uh, there's minimal effort, as I said. Uh, we did get to see Mac Jones hit the gritty, which was pretty awesome. But And I think that's going to be a viral moment people are going to be talking about for a while. But that's pretty much the only highlight I can take away from the game. I mean, highlights-wise, it's not, that's not really the point. The point of the game is to sort of sort of serve as a sort of a lag or a placeholder for the gap in the NFL between the AFC Championship, NFC Championship game, and the Super Bowl. And there's a reason why Pro Bowl ratings don't do well. I mean, the stadium gets filled, sure, because people want to see these guys in action. But it's not NFL football. It's it's a scrimmage. It's eleven. It's an eleven on eleven scrimmage with some good players that you might see, you know, throw a nice pass or make a nice catch. But that's pretty much it. I mean, that's 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 it. And it bothers me every time because 
the NFL has made little to no effort to actually change the context of the game itself. I mean, they've tried, you know, drafting with like celebrity coaches like Dion and Jerry Rice. They've had them pick their teams as opposed to going league by league. But that does not change the actual game itself. It's just the way that the teams are made. The players are still the same. There's a little more, you know, celebrity persona, but that's not why people watch the game. People watch the game because it's exciting and you want to see good NFL football with some of the best players in the league. And to top it all off, the teams in the Super Bowl aren't even in it. I mean, Joe Burrow, Jamar Chase, Aaron Donald, Vaughn Miller, Odell Beckham, Cooper Cup. These are all guys that are pro bowlers, but you don't even get to see them in the All-Star game because they have to prepare for something way more important. I don't know if it would make a difference if you had them, if you had the game at midseason, maybe, you know, sort of a national week buy so that people t- tune in and pay attention to it. Maybe that would improve ratings. I think having... Uh, players from the Bengals and Rams certainly doesn't hurt anything, but the game itself, you lose the arguably the two two of the three best wide receivers in the league and Jamar Chase and Cooper Cup, they're not even in the game. How how are you supposed to market your all-star game when you don't have some of your all-stars? At least in, you know, in baseball and basketball and hockey, everybody's playing. But the Pro Bowl, it's just it bothers me that such a league with such high prowess and regard in the world of sports and the fact that the league makes the most money out of any other major professional sports league, the fact that they can't really do an all-star game right is both surprising and concerning, considering that the NFL has been doing so well, yet they have this sort of one flaw in their all-star game. It's I'm confused by it, and I'm surprised that their marketing executives couldn't do a better job to mark, to promote this game that is could definitely be a huge moneymaker for the league. But you know, if you have effort like that, or if you don't put maybe you know maybe adding some implications to the game would help, like you know the MLB used to do with home field advantage in the World Series. But I don't know; it just doesn't do anything for me. And you know. If you look at something like the NBA All-Star Game, where they've changed the format, they've sort of made it the, the po- to get to a specific point total as opposed to, you know, just going to see who scores the most at the end of the day, I think it helps. I mean, there, were a lot of, there was a lot of positive feedback after the NBA All-Star Game last year, and we're going to have to see in a few weeks uh, how that uh, format continues to translate. Um, but, you know, at least in the NBA, they've tried to switch things up from the mundane format, and it's worked. And I think if the NFL were to make that change, I think it would really help. And, you know, in the NHL, you know, we had the NHL All-Star Game this weekend. I'm not really going to, you know, really dive deep into this. But, again, very similar to the NFL in terms of the style of the game. I mean, it's kind of low, low-grade action. You have the best players out there. Sure, at least, you know, it's not like, you know, the teams in the Stanley Cup they'll make it. I mean, it's February. It's midseason, but that's not the point. The point is the game itself, again, is this sort of mundane, lethargic hockey that isn't, you know, that does not have the big hits, the fights, and the action to what makes the NHL so great. You, you completely miss out on all this fantastic, you know, skill set and talent that can be showcased. I mean, you have, you know, the skills challenge and all that kind of stuff, but But the game itself, the game itself does not generate the same sort of intrigue as it once does, as it once did. There's a reason why more people watch All-Star Saturday night for the NBA than the actual All-Star game itself. And the NBA tried to address that. Same thing in Major League Baseball. The Home Run Derby does almost 
almost as well as the All-Star game itself because people like to tune in and watch guys like Pete Alonso hit the ball 500 feet. People love that stuff. It's understandable. And, you know, All-Star Saturday night slammed on contest, three-point contest. People love that kind of skill set. The NHL is obviously has way less of a market share than either of those leagues, but they could still make a better effort with the game itself to promote a better style of hockey with maybe more five-on-five action with fighting and actual, you know, skill sets being showcased. But, you know, I don't want to really rant about the NHL All-Star game. It's kind of a, it's a bad topic to rant on because, let's face it, it's, it's not exactly on the front of Americans' minds. But still, the All-Star game itself, I think... A lot of what people have talked about in terms of how the league does things with it, um, you know, some t- some leagues have tried to make changes, others have not, and you can see where it really works and where it really doesn't. And I think this weekend was really the perfect, the perfect showcase of where it doesn't work. The Pro Bowl and the NHL All Star Game, it was. Let's face it, no trying, minimal effort, and maybe some celebrations, and that's about it. Kind of a shame, but I digress. We're going to move on. Our main point this week. Super Bowl showcase. We want to get a little preview of the game. You know, last week we talked about the excitement of the AFC and NFC championship games. And now you're going into, this is it. This is Super Bowl week. And now we need to make some comparisons between these two teams. And we need to figure out, you know, why why Americans, because let's face it, the Rams are a better team on paper. I, I don't, it's really hard for me to argue that the Cincinnati Bengals on paper are better than the Los Angeles Rams. I mean, go position by position. Defensively, Donald, Miller, Floyd are better than the weapons from the Bengals on the defensive side like Hendrickson or uh, in, in the secondary, you know, Jalen Ramsey versus someone like uh, Von Bell. Um, it's hard for me to make that distinction because the Rams on paper are a better team. Yet, I think people are going to be way more likely to cons- or to bet on the Cincinnati Bengals just because of how they performed against AFC teams that were marked as better. Kansas City was marked as better than Cincinnati. Tennessee was marked as better than Cincinnati. And in both instances, completely overlooked those odds and managed to come out with two huge clutch victories. And the Rams, let's face it, they have not looked great in crunch time. I mean, it was a 27-3 lead that they had against the Buccaneers, and it absolutely came down to a nail-biting finish. Sure, they managed to pick up the victory. I mean, it, it, it worked out for them, but I mean, let's face it. I mean, this is this is not exactly um, a team that going into the Super Bowl has a lot of things to point out for the positive side. I mean, sure, they won, but there were questions in the game against the 49ers. There were questions in the game against the Buccaneers. This was not a team that looks Super Bowl caliber despite what the weapon despite the weapons that they have. And you know, just from a comparison standpoint, if you look at Cincinnati and you look at Los Angeles, let's look at just sort of the offensive set. Stellar passing game, stellar air attack, and they're consistent in the run. Matthew Stafford and Joe Burrow have both put together fantastic performances on, in terms of their, you know, they've managed to c- compile over 250 yards for every single playoff game and managed to throw a touchdown in each of those playoff games. I mean, that is exactly what you want in a Super Bowl winning quarterback. Stafford has, you know, been under the shadow of the Detroit Lions for the last 10 years, finally gets a chance to showcase what he, why he's such a good quarterback and why he went number one overall back in 2009 out of Georgia. And, you know, with an organization like Detroit, it stifles him. And now, you know, you have a chance to, I don't want to make a cliche, but, you know, spread your wings or whatever you want to call it. But he did. And look, lo and behold, in each matchup, he managed to come out successfully and managed to execute on all points of his game 
and has led his team despite some pretty challenging opposition. I mean, San Francisco has given them a lot of trouble throughout this season. Um, Tampa Bay, I mean, you can't argue with Tom Brady's success no matter how old he is or despite the fact that he retired last week. But still, this is still high quality, a high quality performance from Tom Brady, as well as a San Francisco team that has given them trouble. They managed to win both games despite the different issues that they had. And, you know, because Stafford has never been looked at, you know, seriously because he's on a losing team, and despite the fact that the Rams almost blew both of these games, I still think you can't argue Matt Stafford's success, and that's why both of these teams have stellar air attacks. I mean, if you compare Burrow to Stafford in terms of, you know, a tier level of where you want to compare them, they're pretty even. I would say that, you know, from Burrow's perspective, He's a little bit young. He's a lot, a little bit. He's a lot younger than Matthew Stafford. But in terms of skill set, I would say Burrow's sort of on the other side of the peak. He's on the other side of the bell curve, meaning he's on his way up. And Stafford, you know, is had reached that peak and maybe is on his way down. But who knows? We don't know that. But in terms of where they stand, in terms of skill sets, I think Burrow and Stafford are pretty even. And I think that's going to make for a fantastic game going forward. And, you know, we looked at the air attacks, stellar, similar performances. I would take Burrow or Stafford in a bet against in, against most quarterbacks in the league. I think, you know, two-thirds, three-fourths of the, of the quarterbacks in the league, for that matter, they're better than. So it doesn't really speak to anything bad, I'm sure. And, you know, we look at the air attack. Go to the running game. I mean, you have Joe Mixon on one side for Cincinnati, and Mixon has been a consistent performer throughout the entirety of his time in Cincinnati, and I don't think a lot of people give him credit for that. I think, you know, Burrow is sort of the face of the organization now, and, you know, Jamar Chase sort of follows him with that, just being his best and arguably one of the best receivers in the league. Mixon has been, ever since he came out of Oklahoma, I mean, he's had, he has a 1,000-yard season with 13 touchdowns this year. I mean, every performance that he had, except, you know what's really funny? His worst performance this year, I would argue, was against the New York Jets. The New York Jets. I mean, you know, last week I mentioned, you know, it was so shocking to me that the Bengals lost. But the fact that they were able to contain a pretty solid running back. I mean, he had 33 yards and 14 carries, averaging 2.36 yards per carry with a touchdown. I mean, granted, he got the score and he did have 58 receiving yards, mind you. But in terms of stifling the actual running game itself from Joe Mixon, the Jets, the freaking Jets, were the best team to contain him. And I don't know, maybe that speaks to Robert Sally's coaching ability or the Jets' defensive line, but Joe Mixon is a great running back. And I would say they probably have the edge in this game for Cincinnati. I mean, on one side of the coin, you have Mixon, who has compiled over 4,000 yards in his career so far and a 13-touchdown season uh, going, into this, uh, going in for this year. But... In terms of L.A., I mean, you have Cam Akers, who, let's face it, he is certainly not as good as Joe Mixon. Granted, he is younger. I mean, he's 22 years old, and he's had injury concerns throughout the entirety of his season. Um, I mean, keep in mind also, Cam Akers, regular season, he had three yards. Three yards in the regular season. I mean, that's that's because he got hurt. It doesn't necessarily mean that he's not a good player, but we haven't been able to really see the full Cam Akers that, you know, L.A. was expecting throughout the entirety of this season. And, you know, the Rams run a tandem as opposed to the Bengals, who really generally tend to focus on Joe Mixon. Akers and Sony Michelle take the majority of the carries for, um, for L.A. And, you know, Michelle was 
pretty much the primary back this year. He's sort of been relegated to sort of a split carry role in terms of you know this postseason. He has 78 yards this postseason compared to Akers, who has over 100. And, you know, Michelle this season, 845 yards and four touchdowns, 4.1 yards per carry. That sort of puts him in the middle of the pack. And, you know, I think that both... Akers and Michelle are great weapons that the Rams can utilize at any time. But Mixon, on the whole, is a better player that can be better relied on in big games, as we've seen in the postseason. He's had great postseason performances, and Michelle and Akers have yet to really show that. Um, But don't get me wrong, they're both consistent, but in the running game, the edge goes to the Bengals. And, you know, I think when you look at these two teams— There is, one, there's excitement on the offensive side of the ball that is really, besides Kansas City and maybe Green Bay, it is unseen from any other team in this league. I don't think Tennessee has that because, you know, you may have the, um, you know, weapons like Derrick Henry, Julio Jones, um, A.J. Brown. Those are awesome skill set weapons. But, you know, when you have a quarterback like Ryan Tannehill, it sort of negates the effect of those. And when you look at a team like Cincinnati or L.A. or, or Kansas City, These are offensive weapons that, one, people will die to see. I mean, this is, you know, Tyreek Hill. Tyreek Hill, oh my God. I mean, the the speed that he exhibits is unfathomable. It's ridiculous when you see him break away from the defense. I mean, like he did against um, Kansas City in the postseason as well as um, in many instances throughout all of his career. It's just remarkable to see. Um, But... Let's face it, these are offensive. The Bengals and Rams have offensive weapons that are marketable, exciting, and are just great to watch and can be comparable to someone like Tyreek Hill because, you know, both these teams are obviously in the Super Bowl. But, you know, a guy like Jamar Chase, people want to see a guy like Jamar Chase, and it makes for such an exciting game. And, you know, we've compared the quarterback games, we've compared the running back games, and, you know, in terms of the receiving, this is Van Jefferson, Cooper Cup, and Odell Beckham Jr. That is that is beautiful. That is beautiful. Cooper Cup has been the best receiver in the NFL this year. Odell Beckham has had a career resurgence after, you know, being sort of unhappy in Cleveland, I think, you know, and certainly was unhappy with the Giants. Um, OBJ has found sort of a a role that I think both he is comfortable with, the team is comfortable with, and he's able to still showcase his talents because Matthew Stafford has been able to hit him in a lot of key spots. I mean, the big touchdown that he had in the game against San Francisco, I mean, that's that's vintage OBJ right there. And I think that when you have such potent offensive skill set positional weapons like Cup, OBJ, and Van Jefferson, it gives you an advantage in the receiving game. You know, I think, you know, we compare the running games, it looks like the Bengals have that advantage. When you look at the receiving game, I think it's the Rams. I mean, Jamar Chase is awesome. So is T. Higgins. I mean, T. Higgins and uh, C.J. Azuma is, uh, he is a awesome safety valve that I think any quarterback would value to have in in a in a big game, obviously like the Super Bowl, but I know Azuma is not as you know high powered as a guy like Travis Kelsey or George Kittle or even Tyler Higby for that matter. And I think in the tight end game, I think you got to give the advantage to the Rams as well. But when you have weapons like Chase Higgins, Azuma, and uh, you know um, Joe Mixon, of course, on the uh, on the running back side, I think in terms of skill set positions, the Rams do have that advantage. And you know you compare the offensive weapons; we've compared them. The Rams take the receiving, 
Bengals take the running back game. I think it's pretty split on the quarterback side. What is What does that leave us with? That means on the offensive side of the ball, this is an even matchup. You know, on paper, as I said, it looks like the Rams are the better team, and I think that maybe speaks to their defense a little bit, which we're going to get into in a moment. But this is an even game. I don't know why people look at the Rams as sort of this better team. Maybe they are on paper, as I said earlier, but this is, this is closer than you realize. The, the Bengals have proven time and time again that they can beat any good team in this league. Sure, the, you know, the regular season, I mean, there were questions there, but this is where it counts. This is the postseason. There's no reason to think why, on the offensive side of the ball, they cannot go blow for blow with one another. There's no reason at all why, you, why I would think that, um, that, uh, that Cincinnati would not be able to keep up with the Rams on the offensive side of the ball. I mean, I think the running game alone will help them. I mean, definitely that skill set with, uh, with the Rams receivers is certainly an advantage that you can't take away from them. But an overall picture of the offensive side of the ball for the Cincinnati Bengals and the Los Angeles Rams, it is even. It is even, and I cannot, I cannot really argue that, and I don't think there's a lot of arguments for that. Um, you know, the Bengals are a young team, and that changes things a little bit. Um, you, you have inexperience, and I think inexperience is a dumb word, to be honest with you, because, you know, look at something like college basketball, for that matter. Look at that. I mean... In, 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 let's face it, it's, you know, in, the, in March Madness, it's, you know, win or go home. But think about it. it. It's the same thing in the NFL. I mean, any team can win at, on any given day, depending on the scenario, you know, weather or whatever you want to call it. But th- there is no reason to think why, why young talent should be a sort of a, I don't want to say an obstacle, but it, it's, Inexperience should not serve as a problem or a challenge for any team going into a big game. I I think it's overvalued, and I think young talent could actually be more useful in big games than I think most people give it credit for. Um, Jamar Chase, T. Higgins, Tyler Boyd, they're all under the age of 26. Uh, Stafford, uh, Odell Beckham, Cooper Cup. They're all under the age of 30. I mean, that's four, that's a four year age gap. Sure, it's not that much in, you know, like the real world aspect, but in sports, it, it can play a big role. And, you know, I think, you know, when people say, oh, you know, he's got 15 years of experience, he's been to the Super Bowl, uh, he's been to the, um, he's been to the playoffs five or six times. Sometimes it really doesn't matter. I mean, sure, experience is not a bad thing, but it isn't certainly the be all or end all. I, I, I don't think that, Saying that you've been there before is a great, you know, argument to use to say why someone is better. I think there's an exception to that rule. And, you know, guys like Tom Brady, I mean, Brady, you know, he he does it every single time. He's a magician sometimes that 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 experience serves him well. But if you've been to this, but if you've been to the playoffs three times and you have an average record, I don't really think it matters that much. I, I think it's just. If you're in the right place at the right time and you have the skill set to beat the opposition, there's no reason why someone who is 22 compared to someone who is 31, I don't know why that inexperience should be devalued. And, you know, with the Bengals, they're a young team with great talent, as I said. That, that makes it so that they might have an advantage there. I think the experience could serve to backfire for a team like the Rams who have, you know, they've faced opposition this year before. I mean, this is, they've had struggles in the postseason, as I've said. 
it really speaks to the fact that the Rams experience has caused them problems. I think it sort of puts more pressure on them to make sure that they win these big games. They wanted to get back to the Super Bowl. There were expectations for them to get to the Super Bowl. They made it four years ago, but the the Rams said from the beginning of the season going forward, this is their goal. This was their goal going into the season to make the Super Bowl, and they got there. Great. But the Bengals' expectations were maybe to get a playoff berth. And, and now they're sitting here surprisingly in the Super Bowl. And, you know, um, if you look at it this way, I mean, sure, it's great that they made it, but no one was expecting them to make it. And I think a good comparison when you think of a team like Cincinnati, look at the 2019 Washington Nationals. The 2019 Washington Nationals started out the season in the first 60 games, six games under 500. They were 27 and 33 at one point during the season. And, you know, people sort of gave up on them in a tough National League East. Did that matter at all? Absolutely not. Sure, they had postseason veterans like Ryan Zimmerman. Um, but, I mean, Strasburg had never, got, had never made a deep postseason run. Juan Soto was in his first year in the big leagues, or maybe his second season. One of his first years in the big leagues. And they came back, put together a great postseason run that no one was really expecting, just like the Cincinnati Bengals, and made it to the World Series against the Houston Astros. The Houston Astros have, if you, I, it's hard to compare baseball to football. I mean, they're completely different sports. But in terms of the roles that some of the players had, I mean, Altuve, Correa, Bregman, Cup, OBJ, Van Jefferson. I think it's a little bit different. I know that they're, um, it's a little bit different to compare those two because I think, you know, if you want to compare a guy like Cooper Cup, I mean, he sort of fits into someone like Alex Bregman, who is a awesome weapon, arguably one of the best at the position. You have your veteran guy like OBJ following into that sort of controversial role like Jose Altuve does. And, you know, Correa and Van Jefferson, I don't really think compare. But in terms of the weapons that they have, they are clearly, they, you know, these have these recognizable pieces that people know, love and care about and think that they are on paper better. But the inexperience did not play, did not really face difficulties for the Washington Nationals. The inexperience did not pose any challenges for the Nationals, and they managed to beat the Astros in seven games. And I think that, you know, Cincinnati is in a, in a similar position. I mean, you know, Cincinnati's got Higgins, Boyd, and Jamar Chase. And I think, you know, with the Nationals, you have your young guns like Juan Soto and guys like that who sort of didn't necessarily fit the pieces to say that they were stars, you know, at the beginning of the season. But at the end of the year, yeah, they clearly are. And that's what I think will play into this. And that is why, you know, I could see I, I'm going to take Cincinnati. I'm going to take Cincinnati in this game. You know, I've sort of talked my way into it after going through it, but I'm going to go with Cincinnati Bengals to win the Super Bowl this year. And I think it'll be a close game. I think it'll be a 23-20 or 24-20 kind of score. Maybe a little bit high scoring with the offensive weapons. Maybe I'll go, I'll go 31-28 for my final score. But that, that speaks to how good the Cincinnati team is. And on paper, they may not look as good, but I think they can win. And, you know, we've talked about some of the good things that they have, and I mean, in terms of the Rams, some of their big issues, turnovers, turnovers, four turnovers, and almost let the Buccaneers come back from a 27 to three lead. And, you know, I think the main thing that Cincinnati, the obstacle that really Cincinnati has to deal with is the offensive line. 
I mean, everybody knows that the Cincinnati offensive line is going to have a really tough time stopping guys like Aaron Donald and Von Miller and Leonard Floyd, who I've mentioned time and time again on this show, because they are certainly going to be... I would say tearing up the Bengals' offensive line. But I think this is an offensive-based game. I think the defense, you know, on, on the Rams definitely have a better defense. Let's face it, they do. And uh, it's, they gave up, the, the, the Bengals gave up nine sacks against Tennessee. And Aaron Donald, I think he's going to run right past them. But I think that you have tons of different issues that could come into play here that even though the Rams' uh, defensive line could easily tear up a team like uh, a team like Cincinnati. I don't think it matters that much if it's going to be an offensive based game. If it's going to be high scoring, and if teams can go back and forth, the defense may not play as big of a role. Um, you know, the, there's tons of injuries. I think that also will play a role in this game. I mean, uh, if you look at the list right now, Van Jefferson, Cam Akers, Jalen Ramsey are all questionable. And if they all don't play, this game is going to look a lot different. CJ Azuma also questionable on the Bengals side. And, you know, three wins this postseason and two wins in the entire 2019 season for the Cincinnati for the Cincinnati Bengals. That's amazing. They've won more games this postseason than they did in the entire season in 2019. And, you know, as I mentioned with the injuries, if they don't play, if the Rams big guns don't play, I think they pretty much will. I don't know yet. We're going to have to see. I think maybe one of them might not play. But this game looks so much different if, one, the defensive line can't play a role for the Rams. Two, if their big guns are hurt. And three, you have all the momentum. The momentum of this game is with Cincinnati. And I think with a two-week gap, the effects of momentum are negated a little bit. I think that um, – I think with in terms of, you know, like – Week to week, I think, is how the NFL works. And with a two-week gap, maybe Cincinnati will feel a little bit different when they go back out there. But America's rooting for them. I, I think unless, you know, you're looking at the the Los Angeles area or even St. Louis, for that matter, um, I think, you know, they, I think there are certainly some Rams fans there considering that they left there nine years ago. But th- this is... This is a team that America wants to win. The Cincinnati Bengals. This is a team America wants to win this game. And the Rams... They don't really have that strong support in Los Angeles. This is a team that has moved there just a very short time ago. I think it was not nine years ago. Excuse me. It was about six years ago. And if you watch the, if you watch the Rams 49ers game, look at, the, look at the audience. Look at the audience. If you look at the split between 49ers fans and Rams fans, what would you say? 50-50 maybe? I honestly think that there were more 49ers fans there than Rams fans. Now, granted, they are from California. It does play a role. I think, you know, the Rams are technically the home team in this game. But you, but you mean to tell me that you don't think that the Cincinnati fans are going to show up for this game? I mean, they've been waiting. They've been waiting to go to the Super Bowl for the last 30 years. And I think that, you know, in, in Cincinnati alone, what what team what else what other teams do you have i mean the reds the reds haven't done anything in, in the postseason since the since the early 1990s similar like the Bengals. and now you're telling me that you know you finally have a team from your area making the super bowl and actually playing in a meaningful playoff game i think this stadium is going to be very, i think the look of the stadium is going to be kind of surprising to see how many Bengals fans show up i think there's going to be a lot of them who go to los angeles for this game and i think the Rams, I think the fan base for the Rams is going to be sort of shocked to see that I don't think there's a ton of support 
backing this Rams team in Los Angeles. I think there's some. I think you cannot discredit the value that these fans have, but I think that Bengals Nation is going to show up in force for this game, and I think the Rams fans are going to be sort of surprised to see that the presence that they have in the Los Angeles in the, the Los Angeles area isn't as great as you think that is. It isn't. And I think we're going to see that. I think we're going to see that tonight, uh, on Sunday, and it's definitely going to be interesting to see uh, you know, I've made my prediction. I'm going with the Bengals in a very close three-point, 31 to 28 victory. Um, I, uh, predictions are fickle. You know, they can be wrong. I'm sure I'll probably be wrong. That's, that's always how it works. But I, I really think I'm going to go with Cincinnati. This, this is I, I'm excited to see it. I think there's momentum behind them. And yes, maybe the momentum is negated a little bit. But I think on paper, the advantage that the Rams have is not that big. And I think Cincinnati has a good chance to win. So. There you go. That's our preview for the Super Bowl this week. And, you know, that's really what the main attention is this week. But I do want to touch a little bit on some NBA stuff going on right now. And I want to get into a little Olympic stuff at the end of this. Because, uh, as you'll see, at the end of the show, we're going to outline some guests that we have coming up in future weeks for the show. And we actually have an Olympian coming on the show. So that's going to be very exciting to see. But NBA stuff right now. Because, actually, in the last 36 minutes or so, there have been four trades that have happened in the last 36 minutes. And, you know, this is is trade deadline time in the NBA. And this is what I think sort of, this is where the NBA picks it up a little bit. Because I think at the beginning of the season, we can't really judge teams too well. And, you know, if you remember from one of our earlier shows, when we've had some people talk about the NBA, you know, and the standings and stuff, think about how different the picture of the league looked beforehand. Think about the picture of the league about six weeks ago. What were we seeing? We were seeing, you know, the Wizards. We were seeing, uh, we were seeing the Nets um, uh, sort of dominate. They uh, have a dominating position in the uh, in the Eastern Conference. And look how much things have changed. I mean, the Cleveland Cavaliers, who, as I said, as I said, uh, one of our first show, I think they could definitely make the playoffs. And now they're standing as the four seed, the four seed in the Eastern Conference. There's the 33 and 21 sitting ahead of of. This is this is what's remarkable to me. If you had told me at the beginning of the season that the Cleveland Cavaliers would be ahead of the Philadelphia 76ers, Toronto Raptors, Brooklyn Nets, and Boston Celtics at at over halfway through the season, I would have said you were you were crazy. I would have said you were on something. That 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 that's remarkable to me. That the young rookies in Cleveland have managed, and Kevin Love's veteran leadership for that matter have really, really just have taken that next step to becoming these fantastic players. And I think, you know, with Kevin Love sort of providing what he should as sort of the guy who has stuck through the rebuild after the LeBron era ended, you know, Evan Mobley has put up 15 points in eight boards a game. He's remained consistent throughout the entire season. Um, Darius Garland as well, very surprising sort of to see how he has sort of come into his own as a pretty consistent player um, for, uh, for, uh, for, for Cleveland throughout this year. He's got 19 points a game, three boards, eight assists. I mean, if you look at what he has done in Cleveland over his first two seasons, you were expecting him to move up a little bit, but the role that he plays, the role that he has played in terms of making shots in big moments, as well as passing the ball on a very consistent basis, he has made leaps, uh, adjustments that are leaps and bounds above what we thought was going to be happening with Darius Garland. And I think the team around him has improved, and that makes a, and that makes a huge advantage for a team like Cleveland, who has really just been sort of in the shadows over the last 
few years or so after LeBron left. And things are changing a little bit, and I'm excited to see where these things go in terms of, you know, how Cleveland stays in the playoff picture. I still think that they're probably going to be an eighth seed at the end of the day, maybe playing the play-in tournament. But, you know, Cleveland is a four. More than halfway through the season is remarkable, to say the least. And, you know, in terms of the East, I mean, you have uh, Miami, uh, Miami, uh, Milwaukee, and Chicago sort of maintaining their foothold as the top three teams in the East. Uh, uh, Philadelphia, Brooklyn, and, um, <clears throat> excuse me, Boston sort of coming up the rear. But And, you know, the Wizards falling off the face of the earth. And, you know, that that's that's really what speaks to how... This league is so fickle sometimes, and I think it's so hard to judge when you're looking at things earlier in the season. Uh, and I think now, you know, as we hit the trade deadline, this is this is make or break time. And you know, in, in recent, we do have some uh, actually some breaking news here. Uh, actually, some pretty big breaking news here to report. C.J. McCollum. Uh, it announces the Portland Trailblazers have traded C.J. McCollum to do. New Orleans Pelicans 4, along with Larry Nance and Tony Snell, according to Adrian Wojnarowski. And, you know, with the McCollum move now, moving over to New Orleans, uh, you know, the Trailblazers, this is rebuild time. Uh, a lot of people are talking about where Dame is going to go. I think he might um, go over to Los Angeles, in uh, Lakers, not the Clippers. I think maybe the Clippers, but I would say it's more likely that it heads over to the Lakers in turn to uh, work with LeBron a little bit. Um, but the Trailblazers have fallen off the table, and, you know, it's time for them to move some pieces. And now with their the second biggest piece of their sort of their franchise run over the last 10 years now out to New Orleans, who has sort of come through a little bit surprisingly as a better team this year. I mean, the trade, uh, here is the reported trade. Um, McCollum goes with Larry Nance and Tony Snell to New Orleans for Josh Hart, Nikhil Alexander-Walker, and Santoransky, as well as some draft pick compensation. That is... That's a pretty good return for McCollum, but I think there could have been more. I think that that first round pick, uh, if it lands between five and fourteen, that goes to Port. If it doesn't land between five and fourteen, that heads to Portland in the future. But the first round pick, Josh Hart, it's a pretty good return. But New Orleans is getting a pretty sizable pickup with McCollum and Larry Nance. I mean. These are McCollum has still remained a consistent player. He's continuing to average over twenty points a game, uh, and, and now he's going to a team that has some potential to make the playoffs. I know, you know, they're twenty-one and thirty-two. They're on a three-game winning streak. They've sort of put themselves in a position where it's certainly possible where they can make the playoffs. But you know, if you look at the play-in game, they're in it right now, and they're going to play a team. They they could potentially play a team like. Um, like Portland or um, or L.A. or um, Minnesota. And, you know, in the West where teams like Phoenix and um, Phoenix and Golden State have sort of ran away with things now, the bottom half of the conference is where the intrigue lies. I think, you know, maybe you'll have um, – maybe you're going to have uh, – a Golden State or Cincinnati sort of flip-flop for that one or two seed. I don't know who's going to get it. I think one of the two will probably. But, you know, the top of the conference is pretty much set. I think uh, uh, New, uh, excuse me, uh, Utah, um, Memphis, Dallas, Denver, they're sort of pretty set in those top six seeds. I think you're going to see some flip-flopping around. I think maybe you'll see the Clippers and the Lakers maybe come up the rear to grab a better seeding in the Western Conference, but they're probably going to make it at this point. And the West is so much 
so much has already been decided that a trade like this move from a column here where, you know, he goes to a team like New Orleans, who is thinking about going all in here. And I think, you know, doing this sort of says that they are, despite the fact that they have a pretty tough schedule coming up. I mean, they have to deal with the Suns, the Lakers, the Heat and the Grizzlies, as well as the Mavericks, all within the span of the next month or so, that is pretty challenging considering that you're a 10 seed at this point and you really need some big changes to happen if you want to maintain a pretty significant spot in that playoff race. And it's a bold move by New Orleans to go after such a large-scale talent, but I think it just speaks to the philosophy of the organization. They are all in at this point, but you know the Pelicans, let's face it, they're, they're not exactly a marquee-value team. I mean, uh, granted... In their performance against the Knicks, which I was at actually, um, they, they didn't. There weren't vo- volumes were not being spoken about this team. I mean, they they beat the Knicks by eleven. Um, Valanciunas, Brandon Ingram, each combining for a pretty sizable point total, uh, eighteen and fifteen. Um, Devontae Graham with fifteen as well. But you know, if you swap hard out for McCollum. Maybe that makes a big difference. I mean, I think if you can continue that momentum that you have with these with this three game winning streak, plus adding CJ McCollum, who will be there in the next couple of days or so, I think there's easily a potential for the for the uh, for the Pelicans to sneak into that playoff race. And you know, in the standings themselves, I mean, you have Golden State at two, you have Memphis at three, Utah four, Dallas uh, Dallas five, Denver six, Minnesota seven, and the Clippers at eight. And You know, going into the season, is this what we thought was going to happen? Maybe. Maybe. I I think, you know, the Suns and the Warriors were favored, but I don't think anyone saw Memphis going up this high. I don't think anyone saw the Timberwolves being at the seventh seed on a four-game winning streak going into the second half of the season. I mean, uh, we're 53 games in for Minnesota, and I don't think it's the A-Rod ownership, but... Things are turning around there. They've built some good pieces that they can sort of sort of form a solid foundation around. Anthony Edwards has really come into his own as one of the best play, one of the best young talents in the NBA. And you know, with the All-Star game coming up, I mean, this is as I mentioned earlier in the show, the NBA All-Star game does sort of provide more value than any other All-Star game that I think besides Major League Baseball. And I think having it in Cleveland is going to be pretty exciting because, you know, there's actually some momentum there in terms of the success of the Cavs organization and you know, in the All-Star game itself, I mean, th- this is, this is, it will be an exciting game. Let's face it. I, I, you know, I was bashing, I bashed the Pro Bowl and I bashed the NHL All-Star game for a reason. Because th- th- there's a reason why people don't watch those games. It's because the, the, the game itself doesn't turn heads. And the NBA All-Star game with its new format does. And, you know, now that, you know, Durant is not, is not going to be playing. Uh, it's already been said that he is out at this point. And um, Draymond Green also not going to be playing. But you have good guys coming in to replace them. Uh, uh, Jason Tatum is going to go in as the starter. But LaMelo Ball is going to be at the All-Star game. And you saw his reaction. I don't know if you saw it on Twitter. But he was pretty excited about it. Uh, and DeJounte Murray from San Antonio, who, you know, granted San Antonio hasn't really had a great season this year. But his performance should not have been overlooked in terms of the voting for the All-Star game. And I think it's really exciting to see that both of these guys are getting that recognition. Um you know, the All-Star game is going to be in a couple weeks. It's going to be the week after the Super Bowl. And I'm excited to know, I'm excited to see how the new format plays out. I think with some of the young talent in the NBA, I think, you know, guys like John Morant and LaMelo and, um, you know, uh, Luka Doncic, uh, you know, they, they, these are these are guys that people want to see. They have been over, they've been pretty solid throughout the entire season. 
I'm excited to see what they can do. And because the NBA All-Star Game has this new format, I think it really showcases those guys' talents especially well because we're going to get to see these guys actually play in a game that people somewhat care about. That there's actual, you know, tangible, there's tangible feeling, there, there's palpable feeling out there that when you're trying to get to that point total, people are playing, you know, sizable, contentious basketball that makes for a good all-star game. It makes for a good all-star game. And I think the addition of Lamelo will definitely play a big role. I think people are excited to see someone who has such a vital social media presence for the league as well as just a good talent overall. I think it's going to be really interesting to see how that goes. But that's the state of the NBA right now. And I wanted to get in for these last five, 10 minutes or so. I wanted to get in a little bit on the Olympics just because I want to, I'm wondering, I'm wondering, do the Olympics have the same regard now? Do, Do people still sort of have that affiliation and care for the games as they once did? Because let, let's face it, it, it's I've watched a little. I've watched a little bit. I saw the opening ceremonies. I watched a little bit of the moguls uh, last week as well as some of the um, some of the uh, alpine skiing events with uh, Michaela Schifrin. Uh, not really a lot of the figure skating, but these stars, you know, the stars of the Olympics that you know people have come to know and love over the last five years or so, or excuse me, 10, 15 years or so, whether it's summer or winter, you know, the Michael Phelpses, the Sean Whites. Um, the, uh, the, the Michaela Schifrin's, the Katie Ledecky's, um, these are, these are household names now because of their performances that they had, um, in 2008, 2012, 2016, 2018, they came up and became household names because of the remarkable performances that they had in the pool, uh, on the slopes, whatever, whatever, whatever sport that they partake, that they partake in, that they were partaking in, they made an impact. And, I feel like in terms of whether it's this games or even 2020 for that matter, these these events, they haven't been churning out the same sorts of stars and recognizable names that I think that they should be. And, you know, we're only a few days into the Olympics. I mean, in terms of the medal count, I mean, the Netherlands is in the league right now. I'm sure that's going to change. Sweden, China, Germany sort of holding their own in the middle of the pack in the United States in 17th right now with five medals. But let's face it. Are people sort of having, do people still care about the value of this impact? I mean, it's, it's not the same. It's not the same to me. I I think, you know, there's some good figure skating moments. I think Nathan Chen uh, had a beautiful figure skating performance. Apparently Uh, he set a world record apparently with his breathtaking performances, according to uh, some of the latest from NBC, but I don't feel it. I don't. I don't. It's. I'm sad that I don't feel it because I think one of the reasons why I don't feel it, maybe just because I'm being, uh, I'm an American, but I think the hockey really changes it a little bit. I mean, 2010, 2014. Think of, if you if you do remember, go back to 2010, United States Canada gold medal game, Sidney Crosby with the game winning goal in an absolute thriller of a game. I think the ratings in Canada for it were like astronomical i think it was like 40 percent of the entire country was watching or something like that that's remarkable for an olympic event and now you know in in the united states i mean the the ratings for that matter they're not great they're fine they're not great i mean the 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 opening ceremony record low down 43 percent from previous games and maybe it's because of the pandemic i mean the the uh the, the and maybe because of the time difference i mean the 20 there was 20 million for calgary uh 
the summer games in Tokyo were 17 million. Um, I think people are losing their sort of affinity with for it. And maybe it's, as I said, maybe it's because of the pandemic. Um, but you're given you're given 16 million, and that's good. That's pretty good for TV. It's very good in terms of, you know, the change in uh, television mindset over the last um, five or ten years or so in terms of, you know, actual viewership itself. It's fine. But why aren't people watching is my question. And, you know, maybe, as I said, maybe it's the pandemic. But I think it's just because the sports themselves don't deliver that same sort of excitement like one of the big hockey games did. I mean, even in 2014 in Sochi, I mean, it was the the showcase, TJ Oshie's shootout performance that's a huge moment in Olympic history. Michael Phelps's um, Michael Phelps's uh, world record eight gold medals, not world record, but those eight gold medals in 2008. That was a performance everybody was talking about. Even Katie Ledecky's swimming performances, the, the or Missy Franklin's from about uh, six years ago. Those huge margins of victory uh, just in the pool, you know, that they I think there was one race that she had where she was like 15 lengths ahead. That was remarkable. People were talking about that. But there are no remarkable performances that I'm really excited about seeing in terms of the Olympics. And maybe, you know, the diplomatic boycott or whatever, whatever, uh, you know, political ramifications that there are. But the Olympics themselves. It's on track, according to Sports Illustrated right now, it's on track for the lowest rated Winter Olympics in American television history. That, that's that got to be a concern for NBC. Um, you know, Pyeongchang was at 27.8 million compared to the 12.8. This is all according to Sports Illustrated, by the way, as of right now. And I think that there's certainly the pandemic is a reason for that. But I don't know. I, I'm, I'm saddened a little bit, but I think the Olympics... The committee themselves in terms of, uh, you know, just sort of marketing the events, they have to do a better job and sort of adapt the games for the digital age. I don't think they've done a very good job of sort of making the events, you know, uh, viewable on social media. Um, I mean, on ESPN, I mean, just look at ESPN, sort of the stuff that they put out on their social media feeds. Go through their last 20, 30, 40 posts for that matter. Do you see, do you see anything that relates to the Olympics? There's not a lot. I mean, there's, you know, we had the NHL All-Star Game stuff. You had the trade, the C.J. McCollum trade that just came out, some stuff on Tom Brady, even some baseball stuff, even though they're in the offseason. But there's nothing on the Olympics. There's there's very few. I mean, the, the, the uh, some of the, um, the, the only, you know, what's really remarkable is that the only winter sport event that I see right now on the ESPN, on the ESPN social media page right now is the X Games. There is literally snowboard events going on right now or coming up in the next few days or so. And the fact that the ESPN, the only thing that they have on their page relating to the you know winter sports is not even the Olympics. Now, I don't know what the rules are in terms of like, you know, are they allowed to post that? Maybe NBC has the exclusive rights or something like that. But a reference to it or something, that's remarkable. This, this is, a, this is a, an event that takes that is on the world stage. It's not even just an American thing. And you're telling me that you can't manage to give it some acknowledgement or recognition? I don't know. It's very interesting to see that. And I think it'll be interesting to see if ratings either keep going down or whether or not they're going to have to make some changes because we're in 2022 right now. The next ones are going to be in Paris in 2024. You're going to need some big changes. Otherwise, the Olympics will lose complete relevance in the American sports world. And, you know, I think, you know, when you think of T 
team, sports losing complete relevance. Look at look at baseball, who's in a very similar position right now. Um, you know, I I love the sport. It's I have a diehard passion for it. But with the lockout going on right now, they're in a similar position to the Olympics in that they're losing their presence with the American public. There's no news about it. There, there, there's just the only news is how. The failures, the failures of both sides to come to somewhat an agreement. And I think it's partial. I think it's mostly on the owners. I think, you know, some of the players, the the players demands that they have right now are pretty reasonable. I I think, you know, when you see some of the things that Max Scherzer has said in terms of the demands he wants for, you know, players in terms of better pay for minor leaguers, um, competitive advantages, less tanking for winning strategy. Those are reasonable concerns. But the fact is that the owners are looking at right now, they're looking at profit from advertising, they're looking at profiting from uh, any, any, you know, cutthroat ways that they can make money, whether it's sponsorships on jerseys or um expanded playoffs which i would hate but that's that's where it stands in terms of you know whether it's a sport like baseball or even the olympics right now there are concerns and you know on one side of things you have the super bowl and the nba all-star game where you know there's excitement surrounding it but on the other side of things the old guard of the olympics and major league baseball there are concerns big concerns and i think you know when you're when you look at it from that perspective I'm concerned as a fan of both the Olympics and baseball. I would, you know, maybe, you know, as I said, there's no NHL players in the Olympics this year. There's no, uh, I don't think the, ho- the hockey will not be as exciting. It's also not in a hockey, hockey-based nation. I think, you know, when you have it in Canada or you have it in like one of the European countries, maybe it changes things a little bit. But, you know, there are problems. There are problems that need to be addressed. But that's going to do it today. That is our in-depth on sports this week. And as I said, I'm going to give you a little preview of what's to come. So we're going to have two guests coming up. We have David Cooper. He's going to be joining us in next week or possibly the week after. He is going to be discussing his role with the Phoenix Suns as well as as an NBA, as a big player in the NBA marketing scene. He's going to be talking about what he's been seeing, you know, uh, how the league has changed its whole presence over the last 20 years or so to be one of the most followed professional sports leagues in the world i mean to say that you know the nba has a pretty good presence in the in the united states but in the world it is unbeknownst to any other league in in the in the entire united states the nfl the mlb the nhl they do not have the kind of international presence that the nba does and cooper is going to be coming in here to discuss both his experiences with that and the power of both broadcasting and social media to completely change the way that people see the nba at this point and in two weeks two weeks or three weeks hopefully before the olympics is over we're gonna have cameron myler gonna be joining us in a couple of weeks she is going to be discussing her experience as the flag bearer for the united states back 25 years ago in the Winter Olympics, and she's going to be talking about some of the stuff that I just mentioned, which was how, you know, the role of the Olympics has changed in the United States, and, you know, what the what the uh, IOC can do to sort, of pl- uh, to sort of play up and sort of change the role that the Olympics has in the United States in the digital age. She's going to be coming in to talk about her experiences playing in the Olympics, which I think is going to be absolutely remarkable to hear her talk about that. Uh, And, you know, the changes that the IOC needs to make in order to make the Olympics more, you know, uh, palatable for the newer generations. But that's going to do it for In-Depth on Sports this week. Special thanks to Henry, who's my information producer, to get me all the info this week. And, yeah, see you next week, everybody. Thanks, everybody.